Welcome back to the Bad Calvinist Podcast, where we all get a chance to learn how to be bad Calvinists. I'm your host today, Gray Marshall, and today we're bringing you along with us on the Bad Calvinist Pulpit Tour. Over the last two weeks, Jason, Joel, and I switched pulpits here in southern Ohio, and we all preached on the same text, Genesis 22, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. This Sunday, we will be recording a podcast at First Presbyterian Church in Chillicothe at 6.30 p.m. You're all invited to join us. And in preparation for this podcast, we're releasing the sermons that we all preached online so that you may have the experience our congregations did. So without further ado, I now present to you Joel's sermon entitled, The God Who Bleeds. Hello, my name is Joel, and I'm a bad Calvinist, and you can be one too. Now, that term Calvinist is a little bit out of fashion. Historically, all Presbyterians are Calvinists. It's just where that word came from. When John Calvin's Reformation made its way to Scotland, Presbyterianism was born, and then it ventured across the pond here, and that's how we all ended up here. That's what makes a Calvinist. What makes you a bad Calvinist? Well, I think it's this, um, this dance that we do between appreciation for one's heritage and roots while still being willing to, to question, to learn, to innovate. Hopefully we'll do a, a little of that here this morning. Lately I've been rereading John Calvin's Institutes on the Christian Religion, which is his magnum opus, and in the opening sentence of this giant tome, he says something really insightful. Calvin writes, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which one precedes or gives birth to the other. In other words, Calvin is saying, our knowledge of God and our knowledge of ourselves is inextricably intertwined. Each one gives birth to the other. Now, a few sentences later in that same opening paragraph, Calvin says that the moment we learn something about God's greatness, we immediately see how wretched we are. In fact, the word he uses is depraved. See, for Calvin, the greatness of God illuminates the opposite in ourselves. That's his starting point. And what we find is where we start is often where we finish. When Calvin looks inside himself, he sees depravity before God. And in this, he's not alone. In fact, it seems the natural, religious, human instinct is to believe that the gods must be angry with us, and that they need to be placated. We see in archaeology throughout the world all this evidence of people in different places that, that they feel the need to sacrifice something to the gods. That we live in this chaotic universe, and in order to gain some sense of control or peace or safety, humans have been making sacrifices for thousands and thousands of years. And if you want that sacrifice to be really potent, right, to be really effective, 
You need to give up what you value most, even, even your child. Now, this may seem primitive and repugnant to us, but it would not have been so for Abraham. It's just part of his world, the sad but necessary part of his world. Genesis 22 opens by saying, after these events, God tested Abraham. Now, the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, which is an interesting word. It's one that the Israelites picked up while living in Canaan. El was the name of the, the high Canaanite pantheon of gods, and Elohim is the plural term for, for God. And so what we see here is that the Bible is not afraid to take from the culture in which it is planted and repurpose things. But it's interesting to note that the word used for God when calling Abraham to do this unthinkable act is this word associated with the Canaanite religion. Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up as an entirely burned offering. And if you know the story of Abraham, after all of these years of of waiting, all of these promises made by God, and now God wants Isaac to be sacrificed? Why? How could you even ask such a thing, even as a test? The awful truth is that child sacrifice is a relatively common practice in the ancient world. We have evidence for it on nearly every continent in the world. And while the Israelites, the prophets, later on would rail against this practice and say, you know, never do this, it's horrible, the fact that they had to even put this in their writings indicates that the practice of it was still a temptation well beyond the time of Abraham. It was conceivable to them that God might ask such a thing. And what's always amazed me about this passage is is how calm Abraham seems to be through all of it. Unlike the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is just like, you know, two or three chapters before this, where Abraham's like happy to uh, bargain with God, negotiate, plead with him that God would not destroy the lives of people he's never even met before. Yet when it comes to his own son, there's, there's no negotiation. There's no protest. There's no bargain. It's just, just obedience. Perhaps it's because Abraham knew this is just what The gods do. If there's one thing we know about them, they demand blood. And before we get too judgmental and think that, you know, how could anybody be so backwards or primitive as to believe this? We do well to remember that every time the gods of war are stirred throughout history, it's the young that we sacrifice. And we do so in the name of God and country. But it's more than that. How many of the clothes that, that I'm wearing here today, that you're wearing, were made by unseen children, sacrificing their childhood and their well-being so that you and I can have a cheap shirt to wear? How many children pick the food that we eat that sits in our grocery stores? Or, or mine the, the minerals, extract them from the earth so that I can have my smartphone and play games any time of day that I want? See, children are sacrificed every day so the God of our economy can chug onward. It's a sad but necessary part of our world. See, our gods demand blood too. 
I'm not convinced that we've come so far. So Elohim asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham doesn't bat an eye. He just does it. Perhaps this says something good about Abraham, a willingness to trust. I don't know. I leave that to Gray. I haven't heard his message yet. You have. I don't know how to make sense of what Abraham's doing. I'm more interested in what this story says about God. What kind of God would make this request even as a test? I don't get it. But there's an often overlooked little detail in the story that has become helpful to me. See, while it's Elohim that calls Abraham to do this unspeakable act, it's Yahweh who tells him to stop. See, throughout Scripture, God goes by many names. Elohim, El Shaddai, Adonai. But there is only one name by which God self-identifies. Hundreds of years after Abraham, from a burning bush, God would tell Moses, I am who I am. This is my name forever. My title for all generations. So Moses asked, you know, who are you, God? What, what am I to say to them about who you are? And God responds, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. You will know me by what I do. And you haven't seen anything yet. The best is yet to come. The ancient religious mindset was that the gods could not be approached without some kind of sacrifice. Humans believed they were too depraved for God to love them unless something or someone died first. God was too scary to be approached any other way. And before the time of Abraham, people assumed the, the most valuable and effective sacrifice that God could demand is that of human beings. After Abraham, for the most part, the Israelites stopped this practice. They stopped offering human blood and instead offered up animals instead. And so a ram instead of Isaac. That's progress, isn't it? I'll take it. I want to recognize progress wherever we can see it. And for the rest of the Old Testament, in both the, the tabernacle and the temple, this constant flow of animal blood was shed all so that people could feel safe and accepted by God. But did it work? It didn't work, did it? By the end of the Old Testament, you have the prophets saying these utterly radical things that would put the temple out of business. If anybody actually did that, they might end up killed themselves. Yahweh says through the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God instead of entirely burned offerings. Absolutely incredible. And when he's questioned by the Pharisees as to why he would eat with sinners, Jesus cites this verse from Hosea saying, healthy people don't need a doctor, okay? Sick people do. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, who God is, is most clearly revealed in Jesus. And Jesus reveals what Abraham is just beginning to understand. That sinners are safe 
in the hands of the God who is mercy. God is merciful not because of sacrifices that we offer, but because it's God's very nature to be merciful. We come to find that God doesn't demand blood. We're the ones who demand blood. And God complies with our demand. Eventually, God says, if you want blood, you can have mine. And when Jesus says it is finished from the cross, he's saying this whole way of relating to God through the shedding of blood is over now. It's finished. Jesus reveals the unthinkable, that God does not demand blood, but God bleeds for us. And at the end of this most confusing passage, Abraham names the mountain Yahweh sees. The God who is, is the one who sees us, sees you, sees me, sees us in our weakness, sees us in all of our insecurity, all of our confusion over who God really is. God sees those of us who, like Calvin, look inside and see only depravity. And God says, let me show you what I see. My most valued treasure. For you, I give all. For you, I bleed myself dry. Not for the sake of wrath, but only in and for the sake of love. And so the only sacrifice that God has ever wanted is your heart. That you might come to trust that that God is actually this merciful. That God is not how our neighbors have told us that God is or how we imagine God to be, but who God has revealed himself to be in and through Jesus Christ. That God is merciful through and through, and therefore we can be merciful both to others and even towards ourselves. That's the only sacrifice God has ever wanted. Calvin was right about one thing. He's right about many things, but he's right about this now. That what we think about God is what we think about ourselves. What we believe about God is what we believe about ourselves. And so if we believe God to be angry, when we look inside, all we'll ever see is depravity. But if we can learn to trust that God is, always has been, and ever will be perfect love, then we can learn to trust that we're going to be okay. That we are more than okay. The good news is better than we've ever imagined. That you are and will always remain God's greatest treasure. Fully accepted. Perfectly safe in God's sight. And loved just as you are. Amen.